Hello and greetings, everybody. This episode is an extension of a previous episode. This is part two, where we were discussing Claudia Gallard Mears' book on customer education. We started this episode on December 23rd uh, with the first part we called Customer Education 1984. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Intellum. You know Intellum. We've had them on the show before. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you know the customer education leads to retention and revenue. So the Intellum platform gives you everything you need to educate your customers, partners, and employees on the products and services you sell. They've got a great platform. They've got Evolve as an authoring tool. And with Intellum, put it all together. You can deliver highly personalized and engaging learning experiences, give your customers a single destination for all their learning needs, and create and manage a wide range of content. So check them out today at try.intellum.com slash CE Labs. That's C-E-L-A-B-S. That economy of scale. The one thing I really picked up on around what you were talking about is I loved the con the, the discussion around self-paced instruction. And I was thinking of there was a part I was a little tired when I was reading this and I was, I was reading how in these lab in these areas where people could go in and imagine you're just there by yourself, but there's other people there and you're in the center and you're doing the yeah. self-paced instruction in a lab. And then they have a yeah. lounge. Which in my mind looks like a flight simulator, but it's probably <laughs> like way less exciting than that. Yeah. Um, okay, sorry, go on. Keep going. But, yeah, Keep no, going. but think about that. Then, then the, there was a comment of, Hey, well, we really want, they have a really nice lounge. And I mm -hmm. think, Claudio or something was meeting, was going to interview some people. And there was a comment of, well, they don't really want people sleeping in the study booths. So they encourage yeah. them to go sleep out in the lab. Yeah. Thinking, she's, she's hanging out in the lounge, interviewing them about their experience. But how cool was that? There's this whole rubric for learning, teaching, and there's a place to go and there's people to, to see. And it's, I remember some of this. I remember in the, in the late nineties, I started going to a lot of these local college, community college type classes on how to use a computer and how do you get better at Excel and how to do all these things. And it was so much better to do it with other people. And they were starting to get online stuff. So you'd have a module and you kind of do it like yourself, but then there were other people around. It was a good way to learn. Yeah. yeah well, and, and, and this is interesting, right? Because like, so Dr. Mira is interviewing people. She's like sitting in the lounge, interviewing people, asking, asking how the, the hot pockets are. Um, and do they have hot pockets in the eighties? Yeah, right. They've been around for a while. Anyway, okay. So she's Pizza in the lounge. My lunch. My, my lunch. Pizza, uh, uh, mm. Yeah, bagel, bagel bites. No, that was nineties. Um, <laughs> so she's, she's sitting. She's sitting around asking them, like, what do they like and dislike about this experience? And one thing to keep in mind is that even for the students who are in there taking this self-paced learning in the lab. Uh, they have the option if they want to do uh, kind of like a, a home version of it or to do it in their office. Yeah. But they're choosing in many cases to actually come in and take their self-paced learning in the lab. And they say, hey, you know what? We actually like doing it on site for, for three reasons, primarily. One, because there's fewer distractions here compared to uh, my office. Uh, it's sort of like the idea of like being away from your, your cell phone or your email. Um, although, you know, at that time, it was much easier to actually be able to like step away from your work, right? Because all you had to do was not really be on site and 
not get a call to your home phone. <laughs> um, right. So doing it on site helped them. That's not an advantage we really have anymore for on site versus virtual training, unless we like literally put people in isolation and ask them to turn off all their devices. Uh, the second thing that they liked was that uh, when they were on site, there were more knowledgeable SMEs. Uh, and people that they right. could actually like ask about how the technology works, which at their home offices they they couldn't always. Um, and again, that's that's actually something that we can still provide with with synchronous experiences, uh, even if they're online, like a webinar or something like that. So, like you can have a knowledgeable SME in there, able to answer questions in the chat. You can still create kind of a social learning experience that way. So that's good. We can still do that. Yeah. Um, and then the final thing that they really liked is that they could get instant feedback on these self paced courses. And that's something that I think, if anything, we've just gotten better and better at being able to provide with the technology that we have now. So it's it's interesting what's what's changed versus what hasn't in the idea of self-paced learning. Um, but equally, it's important to understand that they were segmenting their learners. So the people who were in the classroom courses yeah. were, A, people who could pay more because they were more expensive. But also, that's what they were recommending more for uh, beginners Whereas they were using self-paced more for advanced students who could operate uh, more independently. So we don't yeah. really think about segmentation that way anymore, do we? Like having like more advanced uh, people take self-paced. I Yeah, I think you're right. But then again, we do think about it. And I think, I think a lot about segmentation, particularly early phase when I'm starting to lay out a program. And think about not not programs. not that we don't think about segmentation at all, but I mean we don't think about it in that way. Not in that way, yeah. Where we think where we think about like like we think about self-paced versus classroom more in the sense of like scale than we do in terms of like how advanced is the persona. Because people are more comfortable with technology now. Oh, a lot more that's less of a differentiator. A lot more comfortable. Yeah. Um, um, you know, and you want to talk about? There. Yeah, go ahead. Um, the other thing I didn't want to get lost is when we were talking about those early phase self-paced trainings. The thing that they brought up, she brought up in the book, was the companies were thinking that the self-paced trainings were great too because they overcame the idiosyncrasies of the instructors. And that's a problem. Oh, I don't we, remember that quote. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I wanted to bring that one out because I thought that was really interesting and. This is that thread we have that art. Like I always tend to say that training is a trap. And I mean that with the intent that it's not, you do want to do live training, ILT. Yeah. But it's a trap. Akbar's that, proviso. What's that? Akbar's proviso. And yeah, exactly. Akbar's proviso. It's a trap in that you can get yourself into training for training's sake. And because trainers want to train and you can do more training. And then it's really hard to get yourself out of that motion. And we have to think about, if I hire a trainer, that trainer needs to be trained. And that trainer when has all you account. have is a trainer. All problems look like a train and yeah. who trains the trainers. And the trainers themselves can be a liability in that their personality lends a lot to what they teach. So if you have one trainer that's loud and crazy and fun and people are liking it, but they don't have content that's good enough, you know, that's a problem. Or you have somebody that embellishes a lot or says things that aren't actually true. This, I, I don't want to get us off base, but I think. Yeah, no, but I, I, see, I see what you're saying. Like that, exactly. That idea of reducing for maybe like a charming personality, but you don't learn anything. Or in some cases, maybe a distracting yeah. personality, which means you don't learn as much as you could. 
uh, it's interesting exactly to your point to see self-paced training already being used as a way to make learning more consistent, which is actually one of the value props that we always talk about in terms of offering yeah. e-learning programs versus uh, instructor-led. Mm -hmm. And then equally, if we go to the other side, the, she talks about the production process. This is actually the only... Yeah, this is this is the only uh, case study where she actually talks about their instructional design method. So in terms of the actual uh, instructors, they're primarily coming from academia instead of from the industry because she wants uh, not just the company. The company wants people who can teach. Uh, right. As the primary skill, instead of just having subject matter experts uh, or or whatever it is, that's that's actually a, a big difference between. Uh, digital and Veritiper in the situation where like a Veritiper, uh, they're different. going to this train the trainer and they're learning nothing about how to teach. They're just learning all the technical specs. Whereas here, they're actually placing an emphasis on hiring people who know how to teach. And then similar, uh, similar to that, the teams that they're putting together to produce these courses, as well as the self-paced learning, they're actually hiring instructional designers. Uh, they're called instructional media specialists. But these are like these are proto instructional designers whose job is to decide on the most effective way to present the material. That's a quote from the book. And so uh, Dr. Muir describes the, uh, the the instructional design process that they use and they work on a team together with exactly like you said, there's like a project manager, there's a SME. There's uh, a programmer because we're custom building software at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and there's the uh, the instructional designer or instructional, instructional media uh, specialist. So it's actually interesting to see that at this point, they're already using the best practice of not having the SMEs write the training, but they actually have someone who knows instruction, who can work with the SME to figure out mm -hmm. how it actually should best be presented, which is cool. Yeah. And so she walks through the, the process well, first of all, before they even do a course, they're uh, sending like questionnaires out to their customers to figure out where they're going to create new wow. courses. Wow. Yeah. Wow. They're, so this is okay. Can I, can I, I, I don't want to take too much out of that, but I want to go back and then I want you to talk about the surveys. So to, for me to respond to the roles and the, the structure and the how we're creating the methodology. I think that's yeah. interesting, but I, there's something I don't want to get lost in that. And it, in those of you, we've been talking right now at an interesting time in the market when the economy is kind of screwed up and jobs are there. We're losing jobs and we're gaining jobs. And I remember, remember talking to some recruiters about who are the best people to hire. And one of the recruiters was saying, oh, my gosh, I've got so many applications. And a lot of them are teachers and a lot of them are formal instructors with that kind of background. And, but something that I want to make as a caution, and not even really a caution, I just want it to be, a, be people to be aware of it. When hiring somebody for the roles that we have today, I don't know if it's 100% good to just have somebody coming in from academia. And, that, and the main reason for that is that you have to be cognizant of the speed, the flow, the complexity of stuff, and the, and the fact that we have to get go to market so fast sometimes disrupts the formal instruction methodologies. So that's really I all I want to say there is that, yeah. Well, but I, like we can, we can complicate that for, for a moment, right? Like sure, everything sure. you said is true. And yet like, like hiring someone quote unquote from academia can mean a lot of different things, right? Like, it can. yeah. Um, th first of all, there's a lot of people like 
K-12 and higher ed are very different forms of academia. They have different paces. They have different skill sets. And similarly, like people who are successful in those environments also are, are successful for, for different reasons, which might inform the type of role that you would want to hire someone uh, into. Like, like mm-hmm. for instance, like a, a lot of people say, like, you know, think about um, like how many hours uh, uh, a teacher is spending to teach like uh, sixth graders and how much time they're spending doing their own curriculum and like managing uh, these like tweens uh, all the time and their parents and all of that. Like if you want someone who is going to work really hard and manage a bunch of challenging stakeholders, like nothing you throw at a sixth grade teacher is ever going to be uh, <laughs> as hard as actually teaching sixth grade. So right, there's like something to be said there. And then you go to like academia and it's like different, I think, sometimes to think like, okay, someone who is uh, excelling in, frankly, what is a really cutthroat world of academia. um, And again, like able to balance, I think, like research and instruction. Like, again, you can find some really high performers and there's difference as well between people who are on faculty and people who are on staff. Like Mm -hmm. they're both technically in academia. So like, I don't know, I, I, I don't like to paint that with a broad brush. Um, but on the other side, I, I always advise that if you're coming from academia or K-12 or higher ed or whatever you have, like, don't make the assumption that whatever you did in your previous job is automatically going to translate into a job yeah. in customer education, instructional design. Exactly like I would say, by the way, to someone who's coming from corporate instructional design, who's doing this for like uh, uh, internal L&D, the skills don't automatically translate. So you really have to learn what this job is, why it's important, what the goals being measured are, uh, what the processes are in place. So like we're way we're way out on a limb right now. And I want to come back to the instructional design process that they used in 1984. But like point is, like, even if the bones of the job are the same, I, I, I don't know. I just... I would, I would map more to like on the hiring manager side, I would map more to kind of like competencies or the core competencies similar enough. Will they translate? And does the person seem to have enough of uh, a sense uh, of how those skills will will translate? And do you see them kind of in a position where they're curious and willing to put in uh, the work to make it translate to the point where like they'll, they'll be able to thrive in the role to me. That's the ultimate question. Yeah. That, that, that's important. We, we just wanted to have a moment with that to make sure that if you're entering this field, you know, there's differences. Yeah. If you, if you like us, like reading, um, uh, industrial, uh, uh management <laughs> books from the eighties, then you too may fit into the illustrious world of customer education. Okay. So here's their ID process. Um, they start by defining an inst- uh, instructional goal. And the instructional goals are based on the surveying that they've done of their customer base. Uh, from that, they do a task analysis and they write a task description. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're issuing questionnaires, interviews, they're doing observations to figure out what the person actually does. And if you're, if you're say, in the certification world or, or maybe in like some flavors of instructional design, you're like, oh, that's a job task analysis. Yeah, it is a job task analysis. Yeah. Uh, and then they sequence and group those objectives uh, so that they, they make sense in terms of the, the flow. Uh, and then from that, they develop uh, objectives. And uh, so these are learning objectives. But specifically, they're doing uh, a assessment-first design, which not everyone still does today, by the way, but um, certification people do. And <laughs> so they they use the objectives, first of all, for test construction. So they're, they're, they're first looking at what do they want to assess at the end of this course, uh, excuse me, at the end of the course. 
And then from there, then they go back into how do we design the course to effectively teach these things? So they develop the instructional strategies. From that, they actually uh, develop the course. Uh, they try the course out. They learn from it. They revise it. They try it again. They learn from it. They revise it. They try it again. Hmm, they learn from familiar. it. They revise it. And finally, <laughs> add, so somewhere during that iterative process, they deliver it to the field. So yeah, this is this is more or less like Addy slash Sam. You know, some Sam in the middle. Yeah, exactly. With like the 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 iteration loops. So it's interesting again to see this happening um, back in the day. I want to say one thing about this in addition to what how how you're laying this out it's that the fact that they're surveying people and asking questions what do you need what do you want this isn't something i always see done in our in, in our industry today that in fact i've worked at a company before that strictly prohibited me from doing that and the thing the, the important thing to say is that you should be asking your base your user base what they need and querying them frequently. So that's a really good way to do it. This might be a little bit extreme in this case. I don't think we all have to go to that extent, but at least ask, trying to relieve your own internal biases on thinking what other people need when you are not them. That's what I wanted to say. Yeah. Imagine having all, guess all of your learning challenges solved. With the Tables Learning Suite, an AI-powered LMS built for enterprise, you can tackle any challenge. You can easily create and manage content, deliver training, and measure the business impact of your programs. Dechebo is built for customers, partners, and employees alike, with dozens of integrations to embed directly in the flow of work. Check out Dechebo today at docebo.com. Yeah, that's that's fair. I heard um, it, it's like it's like a quote that people say about product managers. Like the hardest thing about being a product manager is actually listening to. Uh, how your customers are really trying to use your product, not developing for the extremely idiosyncratic way that you use your own product. Exactly. But getting out of your own head is is the is the hardest part. Yeah. Okay. So anything else that we want to talk about with digital? Because I, I want to say like, let's say like two sentences on the other case studies. Yeah, let's do that. The last it. thing I wanted to, to say as well, just to reiterate the points you were making, is that this focus on learning objectives was really important. And it is important today that um, I've had this argument and I've seen instructional designers fight about this. Some folks will just barrel forward and make content. Some folks will say, hey, what's the goal? I think, I think and this is just me, I don't, I, you can argue, but I think that having some form of learning objectives are always important for everything you build. That way, that's what we, how we measure the, uh, the it's Kirkpatrick, right? We if can't you, understand the output. Think, yeah. Well, if you if you don't think that learning objectives are important, uh, send an email to Dave at customer education and let <laughs> us know why. Me, bro. <laughs> That's fine. No, get in I'll the comments. It. If get you comments. if you help. don't think learning objectives are important, get in the comments down below. Okay. Um, All right. Two sure, sentences on everyone. Two two sentences. Let's just try to pick out some of the things that are relevant because okay, you got you got. Ortho, you've got orthodiagnostics who are like, this is like pharmaceutical. They're doing like blood, blood testing, banking, blood, blood banking, lab testing stuff. Wow. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, okay. What'd you take from this one? Uh, I thought it was interesting. I liked that they had this hybridization of some free courses, some not, they were really out there. I, the quote that I liked 
is again, this goes back to the free versus fee. Um, mm -hmm. Price for evaluation, but actually free. So they would give the, they would roll the training into the cost of doing business, right? And the cost of goods sold. And I like yeah. that. They said the customer felt well treated when he did not pay for an item that he knew had a certain dollar value. Yeah, you feel like you're getting something special. Yeah, that that would be. My and they're and they're working. They're working with like lab te technicians and hospitals, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So they took that more customer successy approach of things, where like, well, you're paying for it, but it's here, and we're going to do whatever it takes to help you be successful. What, what would be mm -hmm. your takeaway mm -hmm. from this one? Uh, the thing I liked here was uh, they also focused a little bit on the competitive differentiation. So oh, yeah. uh, the, the quote I liked was they say service is the number one thing and customer education is part of service. And they tell a story where they'd have customers who would churn on them. They didn't say churn because we didn't call it that back then. That, yeah. But uh, yeah, the customers would, would attrite. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what word they used. And um, they would go to the competitors because they were cheaper or whatever it was. And then they would they would call Ortho back and they'd be like, hey, why aren't we being contacted about these workshops that you run anymore? And they'd be like, well, because those are our, our customer workshops. We offer those to you when you're our, our customer. And then they would realize all of a sudden that they weren't getting this extra level of service and an extra investment in, in, in them, right? And they weren't getting these yeah. things for free that had prices on them. Uh, and then they would actually come back and work with Ortho again. So I thought mm -hmm. that was super cool. That is extremely cool. I mean, you're basically building your business off your education. Wow, that's a, that's tremendous. Yeah. All right, okay. let's go. Anything let's go to something. There? No, let's uh, let's keep to our let's keep to our, our guns. Okay, here. let's let's light it up with the Jersey Central Power and Light Company. <clears throat> you know, this one comes right ones. after. Uh... Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I think this one's interesting. That you and I both picked up on one thing that it's more like consumer education and what what do you think yeah. is the difference in that I, i'll tell you my well, side yeah well i mean she she says this in the book right like this is like she defines consumer education here as being more like third party yeah. uh awareness type education versus like you know actually trying to teach you anything of the the product itself um you know being a vendor and delivering uh like, like industry training on behalf of yourself so mm -hmm. here because they're like a public utility they can't really advertise themselves very much. They're just like teaching you how to save energy. But what's what's your take? Yeah, that, that was my take as well. It's a, I thought it was kind of fun, actually, because they're going into schools. They're helping going to community boards, councils, whatever, and trying to help people yeah. get better value out of, well, what do you want if you're a power user? Less A smaller bill, <laughs> basically. Power, a power user of power? Or a, a light, uh, electrical, you, you have an electrical bill, right? You know, you can, yeah. like, you don't really have a choice. You can't go, oh, I'm going to go to this company versus that company because they've got cheaper power. Doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's um, a utility. It's a utility. But, so that was an interesting yeah. differentiation. I also thought it was interesting to me to think about consumer education as being like B to C education. We do B to B which is that a lot of these companies were talking about building mm -hmm. the people and the roles and the jobs to do. And that's a lot of what we do today in customer education is it's not just about the functions and the clicks. It's about the, the workflow and the work to be done and the job above and beyond the software. It, 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 that's the hard thing to do. Now into a B2C environment, now you're going out a little bit further and 
not so much dumbing down, but you're spreading your content out for a broader market. I think of, I had a conversation yeah. with somebody at Cricket at one point, the, the, you know, the manufacturer devices that make decorative items and, and there's a the maker's product and the amount of money and resources and stuff they spend on education is fast. So it's that kind of consumer. I'm not directly talking with you, Adam, and training you. I'm going to do a video and scale that up, or maybe I'll have influencers do it. Yeah. And here, I mean, this, they were like making pamphlets and stuff like that. Like they were, they, it was a, it was a more widespread approach. I don't know. Not much more to say on this one. This one. So like digital was a really long chapter. It was kind of like the, was the, the apex of, of the whole book because their team is like so robust and so well-funded and they're doing a million things. And then right after it's this Jersey central power and light company. And it's like a three page chapter. So you kind of like just feel the <laughs> like, long um... exhale. <laughs> yeah. and then we get then we get merrill lynch or uh, as they're known in this book merrill lynch pierce fenner and smith i didn't realize that was their whole title i'm glad um, they shortened it i can't talk here seriously but so again actually like sort of similar they're not a utility they they do have customers but uh it's again kind of a public education model right they're doing a lot of like pamphlets and brochures on investing in financial topics so again kind of interesting because it's not just about the, the classroom training you, again you've got like documentation and uh more like industry knowledge going out there but then yeah. they've also they're running uh all of these like seminars and forums in their offices to build uh like financial literacy for their customers and their potential customers yeah i think that's interesting i like their paternalistic approach as well the, the quote they had, and I actually wrote it down, page 101 in the book, an educated customer is our best customer. And, but, you know, when I was thinking about Merrill Lynch, I was thinking about um, a partner, my partner of mine, at one point in my, my life, she was working at um, a large financial company. And the amount of education and learning that goes into that is immense. And, but it's also... That, and this is representative of some of the industries we work with. I think you actually may have even worked at one in the past where there's a sensitivity to the market that you're in. In financial, I can't go and tell you, give you advice on stuff publicly, and then that might be illegal in certain contexts. So yeah, you have to be very explicit that we're not we're not giving financial advice. But what they can do in this case, like even though they're in a regulated industry, is they can give more. I, I guess like neutral advice that build financial literacy, which from a, a compliance perspective, like, yeah. yeah, you still have to be careful, but it's, it's actually a, probably a net good if you're raising consumer literacy. Okay. So that's, that's, that's enough, enough for um, uh, Merrill Lynch, GlaxoSmith, Klein Trader Joe's. I forgot what else was in their name. Uh, and then we get, we get the final, we get the final case study, which is Hoffman LaRoche. And this is a, this is a pharmaceutical company. Uh, they're yeah. selling vitamins specifically in the branch that uh, Dr. Muir is talking to. Uh, and they she's she's looking at their capstone vitamin education program. Neutral. And this is OK. This is a funny one. I love ending with this one because it's like this is like public service kind of stuff. Right. She's like they're doing education programs around nutrition. They're going out to the market. Uh, they're building a more educated consumer base. This is very B2C. Um but also they're doing some of the same thing where they're going out and trying to educate the public, like, like almost like the equivalent of what um, digital did by going to universities and having this like college yeah. program to teach computer literacy. Uh, Hoffman LaRoche 
is taking their vitamin education program into like public schools and libraries. And they've got this mascot called Neutro the Robot, who uh, is voiced by an actor like crouching behind this vitamin robot. This ro- <laughs> exactly. It's exactly. I imagine it's exactly like that. We need to find a picture of Neutro the Vitamin Robot. I need to look this up. Hold on. Neutro <laughs> the Vitamin. Oh robot. my God! No, we're gonna. I want to no. show a video clip on the video version of this. This would be great. Oh, it's a very fifties looking robot. Yeah, but you got to give him props for for the approach. I worked in the pharma industry for a long time, and that public relations part of things is really important. You have a lot of misconceptions, even vitamins themselves. People are like, oh, you know, you you have that expensive urine now. Not necessarily true. There are things like vitamin C. Yeah, you're taking vitamin C is really going to help you. Um, and I think they kind of stuck to some of those main trends. They, I like that they were doing in like, what did they were in home economic classes or high schools or really, it's just really neat. It was really neat how they laid and tried to help people understand the science behind vitamins. It's really important. Yeah. Sometimes with a vitamin robot. <laughs> I'm going to leave the things that are going on in my head in my head and we're going to move on to the conclusions time. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, um, I was trying to put neutro up on the screen, but, uh, apparently I'm not able to do that very well. Uh, okay. okay. You can look up, look up neutro the robot. If you have, if you have some, time. so robot. now we get, now we get into the conclusions. I think both Dr. Muir's conclusions as well as our own conclusion, right? Yep. Uh, what do we take? What do we take away from this whole thing? Well, just pick out a couple of things that that I was thinking of is, you know, okay, I'll I'll look at one thing that I liked at first pre and post sales. There's kind of a differentiation between where is there? I, you know, I heard a lot more of marketing and sales being evoked through the book. And in fact, I heard a lot more, read a lot more about how salespeople were giving a lot of this training and doing a lot of the work which feels very different from the experiences that I've had where it seems more today that sales is a little bit more removed from customer education. And I think that could change the more there's an embrace of it. Well, I think that that might, that might get us closer to solving this mystery of like what happened to customer education between then and now, which is that you had this strain of customer education that she's describing in the book that is very sales and marketing aligned she calls it out. Most of the objectives for all of these programs are tied to marketing and sales with yeah. maybe like a secondary emphasis on service calls. Uh-huh. Um, right. Like, like, like uh, support deflection. And I think what we saw was like those use cases actually kind of like fractured out and based on the teams that they were sponsoring it, we actually ended up then having kind of two different forms of customer education that were calling them different, calling themselves different things. One of them became maybe something between like product marketing and whatever like product education even yeah like something like like what like whatever you would have called product marketing in like the 80s and 90s because i don't think it was like called product marketing until a little bit later but like something something like that that was really about like how do we speak to the market about our product and how do we build the market okay. or the category yeah, around our yeah, product. It's, 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 right? it's like, product marketing, marketing. It's in that kind of, that's I remember where, being, 
in a company like that, that we had software and it was the nineties and early two thousands and marketing seemed kind of different then, but that was the kind of stuff that. Yeah. Well, because marketing was like two, like, like marketing was a lot of like going to trade shows and mm -hmm. giving out swag and trying to get leads like at, like on the, on the floor at tra trade shows. And then marketing was also this whole like marketing strategy, SWOT analysis, like that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Right. And I think it was like, that that part like the 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 brand marketing SWOT analysis side sort of that's that's where that side of customer education i think went for a while and then meanwhile there was this other side on this like call deflection protect your investment uh train people on proper use of the product that took basically the model that you see digital play out here and yeah. become these education services teams, which especially before the technology arrived for training to become more scalable, more online, and as customer preferences started to shift where there was more tolerance towards someone not coming on site for seven days, uh, and not to mention it cost a lot less to, to do it that way, uh, and cloud technology enabled us to deliver it in different ways, like you had those two different worlds. And it's really only, I think, the fact that uh, now you have the technology to be able to offer customer education at scale through more aligned channels, uh, more attached to the kind of like SaaS business model. You have teams that are, are revenue owning uh, and yet post-sales focused like customer success. All those things needed to happen for customer education as we know it to come back, to like reunite into one. And that's why you have all these teams who have been doing education services. Oh, I'm so glad we figured this out. I didn't think I was actually going to have an answer to this by the end of the You got episode. it. Like all these teams that, that, that were doing education services, all of a sudden have that light bulb moment. Wait, we can, we can actually do the other thing too. And so it felt like a revelation. But the most interesting thing is companies have been doing this for 40 years. This episode is brought to you by WorkRamp. WorkRamp turns customer education into a growth engine for your business by delivering delightful learning experiences that increase product adoption and customer retention. Those are crucial, crucial metrics. WorkRamp's all-in-one learning platform is trusted by top education teams at Outreach, Reddit, Workiva, and more. So get your demo today at workramp.com. <laughs> didn't know what to call it. It just was- We got to the fireworks factory, Dave. Woo! <laughs> okay. Okay. Any no, other well, any other final conclusions? You, you caught no. the thread. You pulled us through. No. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Away. I think <laughs> so. We can argue about this, and I don't think we will. But one of the things that I think is so profoundly interesting, as I read this book, every chapter, every segment said kind of the same thing about ROI that. At the time, everybody what it was. Yeah. And, and, and I want to sit with this for a moment because when I talk to executives, when I talk to leaders, when I talk to people that are considering this whole world of education and they're struggling with the same things that this book did, right? Who does what, when? Like, I think, like you said, we got to the fireworks factory. Customer education is really about integrating all of these different kinds of things and making a strategic approach to helping our customers and employees and our partners really want to use our product, love our product and, and continue to grow with it. Now, the thing about that is every one of these things said, well, we all think it did good, but we didn't, we couldn't measure it. We couldn't measure it. It was not possible, 
right? In some of those cases. Right. Partially because yeah. of the modalities that people are using to deliver it, but also partially because even though she says, and and I, I recognize that she's saying this through the lens of someone talking about customer education in 1984, yeah. that these programs are like well-structured and, and, and organized. Uh, they're not compared, except for digital, uh, who actually does seem to have a really well-structured program. Most of these are not actually very well-structured at all. They're just like, they're doing stuff and they're not necessarily thinking that much about the return on their investment. And they're not really treating these programs like a portfolio. They're just like out there teaching customers and hoping for the best. Yeah. And hope is not a strategy. So and hope is not a strategy. That That's the point Absolutely. I'm trying to make yeah. is now I think we're, we're plagued with the same problem. And a lot of people say, well, it's so hard. I can't do it. No, I, I think we have figured it out now. But I think one of the inherent problems we have is getting everybody on the same page and saying, like I do this in strategy workshops. What are you after? What's your goal? What's your KPI? What are you trying to measure? Start with that, then build. Mm -hmm. Talk to people. Figure out before you ever build a thing, what is that learning objective? Map that learning objective to the KPI and record it and then track through your system the journey of the individual. We can measure these things. We're 40 years out, we've advanced the craft and we're bringing it all together. And I think now we're in a position like you've written some in your book, Daniel's got in his book. We know how the sausage is made and we know how to connect the dots, but we need the market to listen and stand up more programs formulaically. I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Couldn't have said it better myself. And. If we, I guess, if we were to really learn uh, a moral from this, but it's not a moral, moral of the book, story. Like, yeah, sen I guess sensing like some of the themes though across these these case studies, as well as kind of going back to her original question about why are customer why are companies spending so much like time, effort, and money on this thing that they can't even um, really quantify, uh, or that they don't even know what it's called half the time. Like the interesting thread is to see that regardless of any of that, they still know that it's important. Yeah. They have an idea of the goal it's meant to achieve. They're just struggling to measure it well enough to be able to make meaningful additional investment in it. Right. Like all of these programs told Dr. Mir that they need more funds, they need more resources, but they can't show ROI to justify the increased budget. Sounds like the same well, problem we have all the time. It's the same problem we have a lot of time today, but now we're in a much better position to solve it, both because of how far the field has come, uh, because of the work of more uh, recent researchers and people doing benchmarks, and and also, frankly, just because uh, not just the technology, but I think the access to data and the desire to get the data is higher than it's been before. So now we're seeing more and more programs break out of that ad hoc hell, as you like to call it, or ad hoc atraz, as I call as it. Like and uh, and actually build programs that that really do lead their businesses. So that that's what like, you even see it in the org structure, right? Like all of the customer education teams in this book are completely buried in their orgs. They're like five levels down somewhere in like regional marketing, right? That's a problem. And now you're seeing customer education take on much more prominent roles, report to higher positions, have a stronger seat at the table. And that's because companies are now 
tuning in to the value that customer education provides at a higher level, but also because we're getting better at deliberately measuring the impact of customer education, whether it's like a direct ROI calculation, but we're not just saying it's important and kind of like gesturing at something and then just like, you know, going out to regional field offices and showing people how to use the typesetting machine. Yeah, it's it's quantifiable. Yeah. I think that's a great way to wrap this up. We've gone nearly an hour and a half. We'll break this in two episodes. <laughs> we'll definitely break this into two episodes. So uh, hello from the future. And uh, speaking of the future, we are we're actually going to skip forward in time next time in this series because uh, lo and behold, we've surfaced a hidden treasure. We found another customer education book. Can you give us a sneak preview? I can. So uh, the next one we're going to cover is, I'm holding it up here if you uh, are watching the video. It's called Strategies for Effective Customer Education by Peter Honebein. Uh, and this book is from the year 1996. Wow. Yeah, 96, 97. So we're definitely skipping forward in time by the time we get to this book to closer to uh, the, you know, now, now we're kind of getting into like the peak of education services. Uh, so you'll see in this book uh, a lot more, uh, I think, defined thoughts on the value of customer education, the strategies and best practices that are taking, uh, that, that you can take to deliver uh, the content, uh, doing, there's like, you know, there's an instructional design section. So it'll be interesting to skip forward in time by uh, over a decade and check in on the state of customer education at the end of history. I love it. Well, with that, let's, let's lead out here. Um, thanks for joining again. Yeah. If you want to learn more, we have a podcast website at customer.education. Go there, sign up, hang out. We've got a mailing list and everything. You can find show notes. We try to transform, transform transcribe like every episode. Mm. And if you found value in the podcast, tell your friends, tell your peers, share over beers, help us find the others. On Twitter, I am, why are we saying Twitter anymore? We gotta cut that out. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm, no I'm more. Dave Barrington on LinkedIn. There we go. I'm uh, I'm at Neutro the Robot on the Vitamin Education Forums. <laughs> oh, thanks, Alan Coda, for providing our theme music. And if you're a subscriber right now, we'd really like that five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever your music podcaster of choice is. Share it with the rest of the world. Thanks, everybody. Get out there. Educate. Experiment. Find your people. Thanks for listening.